Luke's words implicitly teach us that the goal of one discipline is the discipline itself, while the goal of another discipline is its application. For example, the science of geometry has as its goal only the science and discipline itself. But the goal of another science like medicine includes its application. I ought to know the theory and principles of medicine, not merely to know what I should do, but to do it. In other words, I should incise wounds, prescribe a regulated and controlled diet, detect the heat of fevers and the pulse of the veins, and dry up, regulate, and restrain an excess of humors with periodic treatments. If someone merely knows these principles and does not follow them up with an application, his knowledge is pointless. There is a relation like that of the science of medicine to its application in the knowledge and service of the word. Origin. You're listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Zelwyn Heidi, here today with David Apple to talk about preaching before the Council of Nicaea. David, how are you doing? Doing great, Zelwyn. Good to be on with you. Yeah, it should be a good time. Willie's not able to be with us because he has gone on a quest yet again. He's looking for many answers, I think. I'm not... Do you know where he went, David? Or? Well, I, I had heard him speaking about the Fountain of Youth. I don't know why he <laughs> needs that. He uh, seems to have perpetual youth, so he may just need to refill a few water bottles. But I do know that he, he does love to go down to Florida, and uh, I believe there are rumors that that is where such such streams of water can be found. He's going to get lost in the uh, the marshes down there somewhere, or yeah, in the wetlands? Yeah. Could be. He has maps. I don't know if you've ever been uh, into his house, but he'll he'll take you into his map room and uh, many ancient maps and ancient other ancient writings that he has, uh, you know, accumulated in his wanderings. Written stuff like that. <laughs> right. Right. When he came to the new world, uh, he was the one who charted who charted it all out. How's the weather out your way? Paducah is really nice. It's fall season, so October, you never quite know what's going to happen here in October. It could be 100 degrees or it could be 60 degrees. It doesn't really get that cold until uh, November. But where the leaves are falling, I've already started raking up leaves, and I'll be doing that through probably February. I never have to shovel my driveway, but I'm constantly raking leaves. So fall is here. We had our church picnic, our fall picnic recently. And uh, yeah, things are things are changing. Well, good to hear. It's been raining all day up here in North Dakota. As you say, October is kind of a, a mixed bag. I know that over in Montana, uh, it has snowed already. So that's that time of year for us. Not unusual at all for this far north to get snow in October, although it almost never stays. You know, it what's, just kind of, yeah. Ahead. What's what's the state of the harvest? Um. I'd say mostly done. The stuff that's still waiting to be harvested, I think, would be mostly corn, sunflowers especially. It's not uncommon Mm -hmm. even in good years for sunflowers to be harvested in winter. So they just need to to really dry out before they can be harvested effectively. So. Yeah, everything's uh, still drying out here. The so- the soybeans, I- I'm not sure they're even started yet. You drive past the fields, everything's getting brown, but it's, there's still a little bit of green you can see. Sure, sure. Yeah, and we'll, we'll just see what the, the rest of the month has in store for us. So 
But we should probably get to our topic today, which is talking about preaching before the Council of Nicaea. In other words, the the time between the end of the New Testament and 325 AD. But can you tell us anything about this time period, David? You know, what what are we looking at in terms of the Christian church? Yeah, there's uh, there there is sporadic persecution, but fairly regular persecution, right? I mean, this is mm-hmm. we're post AD seventy, which is kind of a big deal, and so the the persecution of the church is certainly there still is Jewish resistance. Uh, but the church has spread beyond Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not really any longer the, you know, the apostolic headquarters has moved outside of Jerusalem. Antioch kind of occupied that place for a while. Um, but we're even post, I think we're, we'll be talking about it at the time even after that. And so what that means is that the resistance to the gospel and the persecution of the church is primarily Roman and uh, imperial resistance. That being said, one of the examples that we'll look at does certainly still take up kind of this Christian Jewish, uh, what would you say, apologetic or argument. And so sure. that is that is still a prominent part of the preaching. And it's just kind of interesting to think about like the things we preach against. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not I'm not up there in my pulpit, at least not on a regular basis, Zelwyn, um, <laughs> rail, railing against the rabbis or against, um, you know, Israel's hard heartedness. But it still is a live issue, even, you know, in the first couple of centuries. What was it that the Romans were opposed to? Why? Why is Roman persecution increasing in this time period? Well, I think a big part of it is. You know, if you read something like Augustine's City of God, you get a good sense of what the what the Romans thought of the Christians. And it's just the I think they're the Christians refuse to be part of, you know, Roman good society. Right. So the the Christians will not make the sacrifices that the Romans require in order for Roman life to go on. Um, so the rejection of the pomp, the rejection of the the devil's pomp and his show, by and large means, yes, I'm sure there is a moral component in a, uh, every Christian's private life, but it also means you are separating yourself from society, which the Romans want everyone to come along. Is that fair? What 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 would you add there? No, I th- I think that's very fair, and we have to understand too. You know, we live in a time period in which. We generally think of religious concerns and political concerns as being more or less separate. I mean, obviously, we can argue with that and try to make a case for it. But we do live in a time where we tend to think of the two as being two separate spheres. Whereas in the Roman period, and in fact, for most of church history up to this point, the the society has usually viewed religious questions and political questions as being more or less the same thing. And so for religious disturbance to be in the Roman Empire would invariably mean some sort of political disturbance as well. You know, if we're not united together religiously, at least even in this little way, then the whole thing is going to fall apart. And so that's why uh, Christians are generally viewed with suspicion. You know, we don't want we don't want this to be in our in our town, in our in our empire, because it's something that is going to cause problems, you know, down the road. Yes, yeah, so Christians are suspected of being the cause of Roman disintegration, mm-hmm. right? So if, and this takes a couple of practical forms, you know, if you're not, um, what, offering the incense to Caesar, that's one that 
probably most of our listeners have heard of the the Christians refuse to do that, right? Well, now you, well, why aren't you doing that? And what will happen if we have a sizable part of our city, take any Roman city or village who is refusing to make these sacrifices, they are refusing to take part in, you know, the civil, what we would maybe call civil religion. And once you separate yourself from those kinds of ceremonial things, well, now you're you're causing a schism or a uh, you know you're separating out the city, and it's going to have other ramifications too. Yeah, if nothing else, they think that it's going to anger the gods, so to speak. Even though yeah. you know, as Paul says, they're demons, but you're going to anger them, and it's going to bring destruction down on our city. So we need to be united in this way. Yeah, the demons are, you know, it's a, it's a scary thing to mess with the demons and those who are enslaved to them um, don't like it when, and for good reason, they don't like it, right? The demons will get mad if they don't get their sacrifices. That's right. They, they need to, to keep going whatever sacrifice they may want in particular. So. Yeah, they must be fed. <laughs> but how does this uh, affect preaching then, you know, this time of persecution? You know, what I mean, maybe maybe the first question to ask is, why do we have so little from this time period? You know, there's actually very little material in terms of preaching, even just little, very little material in general that comes down from this period of church history. Why, why is that the case? Well, on one, on one very obvious level, um, you're not going to be publishing, you know, postals <laughs> if it means that, you know, that you're publishing what is what would be used against you. Sure. you know, to take away your life. So there, there's also the issue just of publishing in general, um, right? That there's not, it's not going to be easy to publish and therefore it's not going to be easy to um, preserve texts because it's not a text rich environment. But but also I, do, I think that the preachers themselves, even what we do have, you know, how much of it was, hey, we've, we've got the actual text that say Melito of Sardis wrote down. I don't know how much they were actually writing. Well, and I think I think partly because, like you say, this period of persecution in which it would make it very difficult to get anything, but also partly because uh, they just weren't writing manuscripts. You know, preaching by and large in this time period, in fact, public speaking of every kind in this time period was almost always done without notes or a manuscript of any kind. And the, what we do have coming down from these guys, I mean, even, even well into later in history, let's say even the time of like Chrysostom, you know, mm-hmm. someone else is writing down what they're saying. The actual preacher is not the one who wrote it down. Now, what do we make of that, David? I mean, what do we do with that? Well, I think that it's, I think it's worth noting, you know, that it's easy to slip into the anachronistic um, thinking that like, you know, the way that that you and I go about our ministry, this is the way it's always been done. Okay. So, okay. Well, we all recognize, yeah, they didn't have, they didn't have computers, but surely they were still writing out full manuscripts. And I think it's a good point to make. No, that, that really is not the common practice of preachers. Um, Whether we're talking about, you know, big famous preachers like a Chrysostom or even a Luther, or we're talking about just your, you know, quote unquote, run of the mill, pastors, they are by and large standing in front of their congregations and looking out at them and speaking uh, sure. without without a manuscript. So I, I think it's worth saying, you know, that that is the way 
the apostles did it. That's the way that, you know, for the majority, is this an overstatement for the majority of church history? Um, probably manuscriptless preaching. Who knows? That might be impossible well, to say. Well, I think I think that's true to a degree. There are many preachers who will speak without manuscripts throughout church history, but there are also many time periods in church history when sermon books become much more common, but those are almost always in times of very low cl- uh, clerical education. When the guy just doesn't have a, you know, a classical education, he doesn't really even have any, you know, basically enough schooling to read. Sure. And so in that case, then yes, he will preach from a manuscript, but is what someone else wrote. But as far as like the, the great preachers, especially in this time period, yeah, there's, almost, there's not a one that preaches with a manuscript. Chris is dumb, any of these guys, so. And, and I mean, I th- of course, there's the, the, you know, the, we've talked on the podcast many times about the, the pros and cons of manuscript or no manuscript. But if you think about the, you know, the environment that they're preaching in, if you're in a high pressure situation where there's persecution all around you, where it's a danger to even be gathering together, mm-hmm. that is going to be a much more, I, I, I would just think that as a preacher, um, you're going to be speaking from the, you know, I hate to make this division of from the heart versus from the mind, but it is a very, very much this pressure cooker situation. And the preacher is going to get up and say, now this might be the last time that we're, that we're able to gather together. And I'm going to, I'm going to say what I, (laughs) you know, what's on my heart, what the Lord has laid on my heart in uh, evangelical (laughs) speech. They never talked like that, but you know. Right, right. I know what you mean. Well, and Especially because, like with some of these preachers, they were preaching virtually every day in many cases. Origen, who we're going to get to later in the episode, is an excellent example of this. Uh, while he is in Palestine, he is preaching virtually every single day, going through text consistently like that. So part of it could have just been there was no time to write a manuscript, mm-hmm. you know, and he's just going to get up and talk about these things. But it's also. I don't know. It, it's also just part of what they expected from their speakers. You know, they expected oratory to be, you know, as you said, from the heart, if you want to use that language, they expect it to be, you know, done without notes, done without a yeah. manuscript, because that's just, that was part of their culture as well. But what about you, David? I mean, how do you present your sermons? Let's make this, let's make this personal and bring it home here. Yeah, I actually, the, uh, during the I, I used to write full manuscript and, uh, you know, read it with looking up and doing all this stuff that, you know, we're taught in homiletics and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. I, I kind of went away from that during actually during the COVID stuff because there were so many services that I was doing back to back to back to back to back, um, as many of us were, that I just said, you know what, I, I don't need to, I know what I'm going to say and I, I don't need a manuscript and be, and the services were condensed in time. So I wasn't preaching. I wasn't trying to preach a 20 minute sermon. You know, mm-hmm. I was, I was trying to, to just talk about the gospel reading for five minutes. Sure. You know, and I could, I could do that without notes. And by the fifth time, of course, I knew exactly what I was going to say and got tired of saying it. So I changed it up a little bit, you know, <laughs> and that I really did enjoy the uh, actually looking out at people and, and having the, 
the visual in-person sort of live, what, what uh, Dr. Fikentcher calls the thinking and thoughts mm-hmm. experience. And, and you get a different feel to the preaching with that. So I've stuck with that every once in a while, I'll still go back and write a manuscript. One of the, at least for me, one of the things that, that you can fall into if you're not using a manuscript is just sort of laziness in putting together the sermon. And well, I got a okay, I've got the outline and I can, I can figure it out on the fly. And, uh, and that is not a good, ha- you don't want to get into that rut. Um, so just as a kind of safeguard against that, I've often said this week, I'm going to actually write the manuscript. Sure. And I can understand that certainly. You know, I've, I have tried to preach without a manuscript. Sometimes I'll have an outline just to, you know, kind of have an idea what it is that I'm going to say kind of a thing, but having, you know, having a preaching Bible in front of me and all those sorts of things I found to be very, very helpful. But I guess the, the one thing that I've noticed, especially with manuscript writing, because I used to do it too. I mean, we've all done it, right? This is kind of the method we're taught in seminary and there's, there's nothing wrong with it. But the thing that I noticed with manuscript preaching is that you very often will write a sermon that looks good. And what I mean by that is that your eye will find it to be very, very attractive because, you know, it, it looks good on paper, Yeah, but it doesn't sound quite as good to the ear when it's read yeah. out loud. Yeah, I've often had that. This, you know, of course, every sermon uh, at some point, if you're like me, maybe this is just, um, I don't know, hubris or something, but every sermon you feel like this is the best sermon I've ever written. Right. And then, <laughs> and then, then you read it again. You're like, ah, well, I don't, you know, it's, it's pretty good. And then you get up in the pulpit and you preach and you're like, eh, that didn't come off. That didn't sound like I wanted it to, that didn't come off. Sure. There wasn't. And, and I think that that's, you know, the difference between a written form of communication and actually the verbal, you know, and, and the auditory form and knowing, having some training in that and some experience in it, you do start to pick up on, yeah, there's a difference between writing something and a well-written sermon is not necessarily a well-spoken sermon. Yeah, exactly. And I think also with that too, you know, if you, if you still have a manuscript, you want to persist with a manuscript, something that I found helpful is to just actually speak it, to write your, to write your sermon with your voice and then to you know write it down if you need to kind of a thing. Yeah. Because that way you're learning to write for the ear rather than the eye and you'll find that it's it sounds quite a bit more natural than say uh, something that's very well written for the eye. Right? Yeah. Cuz I mean like to use one real good example before we go to break here. The ear loves repetition. It loves it. You know, it it, it resonates with it. It picks up on it. It likes sentences that are structured that way. So that, you know, a a preacher who is repeating certain phrases over and over and over again, it sounds great. It's very stirring to us, but it looks terrible to the eye because it's like, you know, I already, I already read this, right? Yeah. (laughs) I know what, I know what you're trying to say already. You don't need to tell me over and over and over again, but the ear thrives on that kind of repetition. And that's why, and I'd say that's one of the biggest differences between the two of them. Have you, the, another one that's common, the passive voice looks good, but it sound, it is, it's hard to, to keep up with. Now, what's the subject and what's the object? Of course, the mind is not doing that, but um, right. the ear likes short sentences that are active, that are, that have subject, verb, 
object. And uh, often, of course, theologically, we love the divine passive and um, all this (laughs) kind of stuff. But um, in preaching, actually, the ear likes um, that clarity that comes with active verbs as opposed to passive. Yeah, you say the the ball was hit by the bat or something like you know what is yeah. what does that sentence even mean right yeah, yeah. you know just just hit it the right bat hit hit the ball it's it's save, so much better save yourself from this wicked generation well <laughs> the Lord must do the saving well yes that's true it's true but still I mean come on get get to the to the get yeah. to the meat get to the heart right <laughs> no it's all good but with that we're gonna have to take our first break we'll be right back with more word fitly spoken. Spoken. I'm Zoe and Heidi here with David Apple talking about preaching before Nicaea. Well, David, we got done talking about preaching in general in this time period, but I think we should start looking at specifics. So I think the, spe- the first specific sermon that we want to look at is one which is typically called Second Clement. Okay. Are you familiar with this one at all? Yes. Second Clement, um, this is often contained if you have writings of you know, the Apostolic Fathers, it'll be in there. If you haven't heard it or read it, you can find it. It's readily available, full text. You can listen to somebody read it to you on YouTube <laughs> if you want to go that way. It's kind of interesting just to, to read and also to hear. Sure. But it used to be attributed to Clement of Alexandria, who we will get to in a little bit and talk about more specifically. But scholarship these days generally doesn't believe that to be the case. It's more of just a sermon that was later attached to his name. But it's also a sermon, perhaps one of the earliest sermons, if not the earliest, which we have outside of the New Testament. And it's not all that long. I mean, it's, you know, it's got, I want to say like 20 some paragraphs or something like that, if I remember correctly. Um, but what kind of makes it interesting is that this sermon isn't about any one text in particular. It's much more of a, a thematic kind of sermon. Yeah. And it's talking about a, a moral kind of impulse, you know, a, a, an exhortation to, to do what is right, to strive for what is good, to strive for Christ, to, to leave behind the world. You know, this kind of general athletic kind of language, which we see also in the New Testament. But it's not really based on any one particular passage. So, I mean... 
what do we what do we make of that? I mean, is that the way that you preach, David? I mean, do you typically go thematically? Do you go, or how do you? What should we do with a sermon like this? Well, I think I mean you could recognize right away that they're not. It, you know, what kind of lectionary existed in Alexandria or in uh, in Antioch? Did they form a lectionary right away and then say, "Hey, when you know when we plant the church in you know the far flung." flung places of the empire, let's all make sure we're on the same lectionary. It's possible, but it's probably unlikely, right? Um, it's much more likely that you would you would start as sort of a, in a what we would say is a free text kind of environment. Why wasn't Second Clement preaching on the assigned pericopes for uh, the third <laughs> the third Sunday after Trinity? Well, he didn't. There was no such thing, right? Right. So you get these more thematic sermons that are, um, at least in the example of Second Clement, um, you can see, like you said, Zelwyn, it's very much how, you know, how should, how do we, what is the, what is the life of the Christian? What does the Christian life look like? How do we respond to the salvation um, that we have been brought into? How do we, how should we live? How now should we live? Sure. Well, and I think, but I think the thing that maybe we want to consider here is that, you know, yes, there's no lectionary at this point. This is far too early for the lectionary, or if there is a lectionary, we don't know much about it. It's also a recognition that there's not even really a a general text that's going on here. I mean, do you, do you get up and basically just say, okay, I'm going to talk today about, you know, what it means to, to strive as a Christian, but I'm not really going to give you something to think about. I'm just going to give you a bunch of exhortations bringing texts into it. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I follow the lectionary, the lectionary, as you would say, <laughs> Zelwyn. And, and for the most part, I mean, honestly, I, I pretty much usually preach on either the gospel or the epistle. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I'm not thematic in my preparation is not thematic. Now, there there are themes that come out in the readings themselves, and so you do have theme-like sermons, but um, I don't say, all right, I'm going to preach on, you know, I'm going to preach a sermon on repentance, and I'm going to use these three, these three, you know, texts as my main texts. It, for me, it goes the other way around. Does that get at what you're yeah, I, th- I think so. And I, and I, and I want to make it clear, you know, this is, there's a lot of variety in preaching in this time period, at least from what we've, what we still have. And this is kind of just one way in which they went about it. You know, this, this more thematic kind of, I'm going to talk about repentance. I'm going to exhort you to godliness, but I'm not really going to do it by saying, okay, let's read this passage first. You know, it's more of like, I want you to do the right thing and I'm going to bring this text in to make my point kind of a thing. So it's using the scripture in a supportive way rather than like straightforward um, expositing the text, you know, trying to lay it out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair to say thematic versus uh, expository. And I don't mean verses as in they're opposed to each other, but these are two different ways that as a preacher, you can say, all right, I'm going to prepare my sermon either based on a text or based on some Christian doctrine or some exhortation that I want to give. Now, why why does preaching in this time period have such a moral focus to it, David? You know, there we're going to see this again and again and again. There is this constant exhortation towards doing what is Christian, towards doing what is right. You know, you are called as a Christian, so let us run the race, kind of a thing. You mm-hmm. know, let us 
put away vice, let us put on virtue. This is very common in this sort of preaching. We see it in Second Clement too. You know, what what do we make of that then? Well, I think part of it is the minority character of the Christian of the mm-hmm. church, right? When you're you think of the context, or uh, maybe another way to to talk about it is that the church at this point is primarily missionary in its work. And of course, the church is always on its mission, but it's early in the mission. And so you're, he's probably preaching to many people who did not grow up within the church and who do have a former way of life. You know, I always, it often strikes me, you know, when we talk about, like when we preach now to a a congregation that has many of our members, if yours is like mine, who grew up in the church, who never really remember a time when they were not in the church. And you talk about, you know, how baptism has has brought you out of something and into something new. Well, I I personally don't remember a day in my life when I wasn't baptized. Now, of course, you can make that application because you still have the, you know, the old man is alive and must be crucified. Uh, but if you think of the congregation that he's preaching to here, these are people who, when they heard the gospel and when they were brought into the church, there was many things that had to change in their life. And so the pastor is interested and is doing his his job in saying, don't go back, right? Avoid these things, go forward, pursue these things. And you have to do that. The gospel does bring a new life. It brings a new identity and it brings a new way of life uh, to the congregation. But when, and that's, you know, that's that's well put, but when does it become not exhortation, but rather just straight moralizing. Do you know what I mean by moralizing? When do we cross that line? Yeah, maybe it would be good to define what we mean by moralizing. What do you, because that, that term, like I've heard John Chrysostom described as a moralistic preacher, you right. know, and uh, I've probably said things like that myself. And then you go and you read him and you're like, why did I ever say that? Oh, because somebody told me that that was true about him. Um, or you hear that Luther, maybe in all his sermons are just moralistic and you go back and you read it and well, maybe it kind of is. I don't know. So what do you mean when you say um, preaching that is moralistic? Well, moralizing, I would define as preaching like Christian living in such a way that it almost becomes the very center of what it means to be a Christian almost, I mean, I, if you want to get real technical, it'd almost be like, you know, you need to do all of these things to get yourself to heaven kind of a thing to make God happy with you. Right. And obviously there can be a fine line between some of this stuff. You know, what is the difference between a, a very strong exhortation for, for example, and when does it become moralistic? You know, maybe that's a question we need to wrestle with, but there are certainly periods in church history. And I'm not saying in this one in particular, where, the emphasis very much becomes, okay, here's all the ways you can get rid of vice, for example, you know, very practical kind of things, but you never actually really get around to talking about the gospel. Sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah, but, I mean, how, what, what do we do with that? Well, I think, think it reminds me of like the Didache, right? Um, when you compare mm-hmm. like our catechism with the Didache, the Didache is, as I'm not going to say there's no doctrinal content to it. But it's very much there's two ways, the way of life and the way of death. And here's what characterizes the way of death. And here's what characterizes the way of life. And, you know, 
then you look at our catechism and, okay, you've got the Ten Commandments, certainly. Uh, but then, okay, we're going to spend a, a long time on the creed. We got to do some teaching on the Lord's Prayer and teaching on the sacraments. And you, it's, I'm sure that that happened in the early church, but it's not in the manual that we look to <laughs> and say that's their early catechism. So, you know, at what point does it become moralism or moralizing? I think if, if the goal is simply behavior, um, and the, the preacher says, I've got to get these people to do the right thing, regardless of faith in Christ, regardless of the work of the spirit. Yeah, that's going to be a problem. And it, it, it's a, it's a possibility. Um, it's a, it's a real thing that does happen. Uh, but at the same time, I think recognizing the, the role of the sermon, uh, sermons do need to give um, guidance and exhortation. If are we just using the same word, but one is a positive term and the other one's a negative term? Um, yeah, well, yeah, but <laughs> you do you do have to give. Here is the way that we have to go as Christians. We must resist these things and witness to the gospel by doing these things. Well, we would be going against the scriptures themselves if we didn't, you know, right. because Paul himself. I mean, let's just take Romans for example. You know, after going through 11 chapters of doctrinal kind of stuff, spends the last, you know, what, 12 through 16, purely an exhortation. This is what it means to be renewed in your mind. This is what it means to live as a Christian. This is what it means to be under government. You know, all these things, these very practical kinds of implications, which flows out from the doctrine. So, yes, there must be application. There must be, a, you know, this is how we should live as Christians, because that's part of the New Testament. It's just we have to recognize that, as you said, we don't want them to just behave better without really bringing Jesus into the equation, because that's, you know, that's a very moralistic kind of approach to things. Yeah. But So, the I mean, just look at how Second Clement starts. I mean, I guess <laughs> this almost, I suppose you could abuse and... And preachers will abuse things all the time. Um, but uh, you could abuse this and just say, well, it's just a disclaimer. You can give a moralistic sermon if at least at the beginning you say, we should remember what Christ has done for us. And now let me tell you all the ways that, you know, all the practical applications of that. That in some ways, that's sort of the summary of Second Clement. I mean, that's a crass summary, Zelwyn. Don't, right, don't jump down right. my throat. But that's what he does, right? He says... Christ has done great things for us, and we should never think lightly of them. And because he has done such great things for us, we are, we, it's almost like Hebrews kind of stuff. We must pay much closer attention to the salvation that has been brought to us and to our way of life. Well, I'm not saying that Second Clement is moralizing. I'm not trying to give yeah. that impression. I just know that the accusation is sometimes made, especially by preachers who don't really like exhortation in general. And also... There are certainly sermons that do moralize. I'm not saying this one in particular yeah. does. I'm just saying that it does happen. So yeah, maybe maybe one of the ways that that would ha I mean, if you're if the moralistic less if all of scripture becomes just an example, right? Where we're, we're going to use the supernatural stuff to just say you should be like Abraham or you should be like Isaac or you should be like Jacob. Yeah, that's you're you're gonna slip into moralism you're going to get rid of the focus on the the moral lesson instead of the uh you know what god has done and teaching people the meaning of that right 
you know, you should not get drunk, for example. That's a very Christian thing to say. But if not <laughs> drinking yeah. is all you're concerned about. Yeah, that's a good point. Then you've crossed a line somewhere. Right. So, the whole, so if, if I took my, um, it, my thematic sermon and said, I'm going to preach, since Willie's not here, we can say these things, right? I'm going to preach against, I'm going to, it's going to be a teetotaling sermon, right? <laughs> that's, pro- you're probably getting way too specific. Sure. And that, and maybe at that point you run the danger of moralizing. The whole sermon is about um, why you should not wear the color. You should not wear bright colors. Okay. You should, um, that, I know that's dear, near and dear to you, Zelwyn. Um, <laughs> you should adorn yourself in, uh, in humility. Okay. That's true. But to preach on that for 20 minutes, you're going to be, um, sounding, uh, a very mono, monotonal sermon. Sure. Well, let's, let's be honest. If we're talking about the ancients, they're preaching on these things for like two hours at a time. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not you can just... touch, you can touch on a lot of things in two hours. Maybe a good idea. <laughs> Well, uh, we're coming close to the end of this section, so maybe what I want to do just to, to get another another one of these sermons in is talk very briefly about the actual Clement of Alexandria. And Clement of Alexandria himself was a bishop who lived in Alexandria, obviously, and he's closely connected with Origen. He's, Clement is also very heavily influenced by Greek thought in his day, He's also trying to very closely connect the two of them to say, you know, he quotes Homer just as much as he quotes the Bible. Let's put it that way. Sure. Um, but his his famous sermon that we have is is called Who is the Rich Man That Shall Be Saved? Again, one of those sermons you can find very easily on the Internet. But it's a little bit different from Second Clement, because unlike Second Clement, which is, you know, wasn't written by him, who is the rich man that who is the rich man that shall be saved is focused on a single passage which is, of course, the rich young man. And it talks very much about the deceitfulness of riches and the dangers of wealth. And But it, un, like I say, it is, it is so focused on what this text is doing and what this text in particular means that that's all it really talks about. So, you know, how do, how do we approach a sermon like that then? Because I think this is much closer to the way that we typically preach, right? To focus kind of on, in on one thing, right? Yeah, I think you're so second Clement, is this fair to say, is an example of a thematic sort of sermon and then yes. um how the how the rich man is saved is um is much more of an expository sermon. We're gonna go through the text and we're going to um comment on the individual verses and the individual words. And what you see there is that both have, you know, ancient historical precedent. This is the way that the this is the way preachers work. Um, sometimes specifically going straight through a text. And this is much more common to us. This is much more familiar to us. And sometimes on a theme, which mm-hmm. one's better? I, don't, I mean, that's a hard, it, it's <laughs> not that one is better than the other, right? It's just, this is the way that we do it is by going through the text. Well, what's the advantage of, say, like with a single text to go through it verse, you know, verse by verse, sometimes even, you know, phrase by phrase or word by word, What's the advantage of that sort of preaching? Well, I think the big advantage is this: the text is given by the Spirit, right? Okay. And so you're you are taking your thoughts captive to the the way the Spirit, the logic of the Holy Spirit. So you know, I might in my outlining of something, I might say, 
it should go A, B, D, then C. But if I'm if I'm captive to the actual progression in the text, now I'm going A, B, C, D. You know, I'm connecting the dots in the order that the Holy Spirit gave them. And of course, as soon as I say that, I know somebody will will take that as oh, that's you know, you're being a fundamentalist about it, or you know, that's of course the ultimate insult. And what's, what's these, wrong with that? But yeah, on. these these things that are when we say that this is the better way or something, you know, this is, um, it, it's just uh, that's I don't know how else to say it. You know, sure. um, of course, there's going to be exceptions, but I think expository preaching, just unfolding the text, walking people through the text, you put them into more and more uh, people are saturated in the actual way that the spirit still speaks. Well, and another big advantage of, you know, this sort of unfolding of the text like this is that you can deal with uh, words that are unfamiliar, for example. If you need to preach a sermon on propitiation, for example, you know, you can actually take the time and say, this is what propitiation means. This is, you know, why we use this word or even something more common, say, like justification or sanctification or redemption. Any of these words that we typically use, but that the church, unfortunately, is starting to lose, right? We are a less biblically literate culture, and we struggle with the definitions of some of these words. And so being able to expound on these and kind of pull them apart and show that this is what they mean, yeah, I think that that is a a very beneficial thing. Could that be done with a thematic sermon? Of course it could. But I think that a single text sermon like this lends itself even better to that. Well, you mentioned that uh, Clement also quotes Homer just as much as the Bible. So what what do you make of that zone? I mean, how much how many pop culture references are uh, too many? (laughs) You know, Uh, yeah, that's a hard question because we live in a time where also people really resonate with like the the illustrations, like people like illustrations. They want things to, they like the nice stories that you tell, you know, that's, that's the anecdotes, right? The anecdotes, right. They, they like those kinds of things. And there's certainly a place for them. I mean, if we go even say last century with like Walter A. Meyer and his preaching, his preaching is full of anecdotes. He's always using examples from somewhere other than the scriptures. And he did it very, very well. So, yeah, I think I think it can be done well. However, we all know of examples where it becomes the only focus. Yeah. You know, I know. Well, now I'm speaking against you, David. I know you're doing some like Marvel (laughs) (laughs) preaching series, but (laughs) Jesus is actually like Thor, you know, (laughs) yeah. How the Incredible Hulk can teach us about redemption or something like that. But yeah, I think and that that's a good. So there is, uh, again, anything can be abused. And the swing back against that is, well, I'm never going to make a, a reference to pop culture. I'm, I'm going to only use biblical illustrations. OK, that's a good, healthy like mindset. But that's also that that you're you're setting your you're very you're narrowing yourself down and i think as preachers you want to be well read you want to be um you you have in order to communicate you have to take something that's familiar you take what's unfamiliar and you join it to what is familiar that's how people learn right that's the process of learning and so i don't think it's it's uh you know sinful to use 
of course, baseball illustrations are the best. Um, but you can use you can use pop culture illustrations without totally destroying your your ministry. Coming soon to Paducah, a Hollywood movie series. <laughs> with that, we need to go into our second breaks. So we'll be right back with more word fitly spoken. Spoken. I'm your host, Selwyn Heidi, here with David Apple talking about preaching before Nicaea. Okay, so we talked about Clement and we also talked about things that were supposedly written by Clement, but now we need to look <laughs> at some of the other things that come down from this time period. And perhaps one of the most famous ones of recent years, you know, only recently discovered, is Melito of Sardis and his uh, famous sermon, uh, Peri Pasca or on the, on the Pascha, on the, the uh, Paschal Sermon. Um, maybe just to give a quick overview of him before we talk about the sermon, though, David, Melito is the Bishop of Sardis, and even though he was important in his own time, uh, most of his works have been lost. We don't have much from him. He was also what is, uh, what is now called a quartodeciman, which means that he believed that Easter should be observed on the 14th of Nisan, regardless of what day of the week that was. So in other words, it could have been a Thursday, it could have been a Wednesday. It was always closely connected to when Passover would have occurred, right? This was a position that was eventually condemned by the early church so that we now observe Easter in the way that we do, which is the Sunday following, whatever that happens to be. But that's not the main point. What do we know about this sermon, David? Well, if you read it or or even if you listen to it, maybe some words that come to mind are um, dramatic. It is, in some ways, it's it's like, I don't want to say the opposite. It's not the opposite, but it is very different than Second Clement or even uh, Clement of Alexandria, right? It is this, what we would probably call high rhetoric. Um, and that's not just because it's, uh, in old old timey language translation, I mean, I think some if you actually read Second Clement, you might think, "Wow, this is fancy," but that's just because it's an old translation. When you read Peri Pasca, it actually is um, rhetorically very different, and so you have he's speaking as if he's, you know, in the person of Jesus, and so you have these "I am" statements um, as if Jesus were addressing the congregation there. Um, and just the the typology of the Passover and how it foreshadowed um, Christ's death and resurrection is spoken in a very moving, very moving, rhetorically gifted way. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, let me give just a, a couple of a little bit from it so you get a feel for it. Um, this is coming towards the end of the sermon. Melito says, He it is who made the heaven and the earth and formed humanity in the beginning, who was proclaimed through the law and the prophets, who took flesh from a virgin, who was hung on a tree, who was buried in earth, who was raised from the dead and ascended to the heights of heaven, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who has the power to save all things, through whom the Father acted from the beginning and forever. You know, very poetic language, very beautifully rhetorically. You know, it is something that is, like you say, very moving. It is also something that's very heavily influenced by Greek forms. You know, this is a, a certain way of speaking that would have been very common in the ancient world. And it is very moving. But I guess the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is you know, what place does rhetoric like this have in our preaching? Does it have any place or is it something that we need to be wary of? What do you, what do you think, David? Well, I think it's you have to be gifted to be able to write like that or speak like that. And when you try to impersonate it, it's it can easily come off as um, forced. Like if I got up in the if I said this is a great sermon, I'm going to just use it on, say, Monday, Thursday or on Good Friday or something. And uh, because I think there's there's some debate, isn't there, Zowen, on whether this was actually a sermon or if it was a fixed piece of the liturgy. Right. Um, right. So if if I tried to do this in my pulpit. Certainly, the glory of Christ would be extolled, and that's, I think, the the benefit of this kind of preaching. There is a place for that, right? That we're going to speak in a very high high way, um, poetic way about the beauty of Christ and and what He's done for us, and people can just marvel at that, and it's that's a edifying thing for the church. But it can easily feel forced, and I'll just tell one story about this of something I tried to do that I think really fell flat. So. Maybe some of our listeners have tried this too, and they can tell their own stories. But Easter vigil, right? At least somebody told me that this was the tradition that at the vigil service, you're supposed to read John Chrysostom's great Easter sermon. So I had never done that before. And this was maybe two two or three years ago. I said, all right, I'm going to try that. And uh, so I was all excited for it. And so you, and uh, that sermon is very much like this one where you've got this gifted man who wrote down and delivered an amazing sermon, a beautiful sermon. And so I get up in my pulpit in Paducah, Kentucky, and I try to do the same thing. And it was so different from how I, who I am and how I speak that, you know, people were just looking at me like, what's going on? Who is this who's speaking to me? <laughs> and so I, it was like a lead balloon, you know? And so I thought, well, maybe that's not the way to do it. I'm not going to I'm not going to use John Chrysostom anymore. I'll let him be his own guy. And so the next year um, for Easter Vigil, I thought I'm not going to prepare anything. It's a short sermon anyways. I'm just going to say whatever comes into my mind. And it was beautiful. I mean, I'm not trying to boast of myself and I didn't even record the sermon. Maybe that's why it worked so well. Um, so nobody <laughs> can, nobody can actually check this. But I think probably um, one of my one of my best sermons that I've ever preached. But it was again, it wasn't, it, it was very different than this because it was my own words. And so I think, um, when you, when we as preachers want to utilize this, we should always be a little bit careful of sounding phony. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's very fair. 
and I and I understand the motivation for you know wanting to speak rhetorically like this to use high rhetoric in your sermon. You know, it's because, like you say, you want to glorify Christ, and that's a very noble thing to do. But at the same time, we have to recognize that, you know, that it may be good every now and then um, to do this sort of thing. But the the regular fare for the congregation, especially for a congregation who are not used to that kind of rhetoric, who don't uh, who don't speak that way, who don't think that way, who were not educated that way, I think it's a very helpful thing to speak very plainly. And I realize that that's coming uh, from a certain tradition within church history, you know, a, a way of thinking about preaching. But I think it's a good one because, you know, as Paul says, you know, I'd rather speak <laughs> five words in a in a language that can be understood rather than 10,000 in a tongue. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, I mean, I think, uh, and, and who knows, right? Again, we don't have Melito's postal, so we don't know what, what what he was regularly preaching like. But I, I think especially around the major festivals, Christmas, um, you can glory in the incarnation, and uh, you know you can write the fanciest sermon, and you'll never touch the glory of that God became man. So go for it, and uh, you know around the Easter season, you get these great festivals where yeah, it's a good time to attempt it. But again trying to there i just think it's it's going to come across as forced if i were to say i'm going to do perry pasca this year or i'm going to do chrysostom's easter vigil sermon yeah i hear you anything else you want to say about melito before we move on david doesn't he okay so this is this is how i listen to it and uh you can either comment on this one or not but he also has melito is a good example of the continuing hostility between the Christians and the Jews, because somewhere in this sermon, he's got an extended, like, um, it almost sounds like the reproaches that we have in our Good Friday liturgy of what Israel should have said, but what they were saying instead as they crucified the Lord. And he has a very long section. And if you, uh, if you listen on YouTube to somebody read this, oftentimes they will skip that part of the sermon because they're afraid of I don't know, being censored or that, you know, it's too anti-Jewish, but he's, he's using, you know, the historical fact of Christ's crucifixion um, to make a point about those who harden themselves against Christ. And, and by a long section of the sermon, you mean the second half of the sermon, right? (laughs) The application portion. The application of the sermon. (laughs) Yes. I mean, that is, that is very much a, a characteristic of this sermon. And it is still a very live concern in a way that maybe it's not so much for us these days, you know, because this is still a time when Jewish rhetoric would still have been saying, you guys are totally illegitimate. You need to come back to the synagogue, all that sort of thing. And Melito was basically saying, no, that's not the case. This is why you're wrong and why, in fact, this is what this has always been building up to. So yeah. I think I think it is very effective rhetoric when it comes to making that point as well. Well, and the typological, okay, so if if Jesus is the Passover lamb, who is who's the new pharaoh? You know, is it just the Romans or is it <laughs> you know, it's not just Pontius it's not just Pontius Pilate, right? It's the Jews right. and the Romans and I guess you could quickly fast forward and say and each of us is he was crucified for us and for our sins and that's true. Uh, but the typological point is that the unbelieving Jews are 
a type of the unbelieving heart. And, uh, and they personify that in a very graphic way in the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, now I know what your next Easter sermon is going to be. So <laughs> Perry Pasca, we'll, we'll Perry record Pasca. it. We'll record it on the St. Paul uh, Paducah podcast. It'll get taken down. <laughs> oh, very good. Well, but I think before we get, before we close for today, cause we're kind of coming up towards the end of the episode, we do need to talk at least a little bit about arguably one of the most important figures in this time period, which is, of course, Origen. Uh, Origen being a very famous and important figure who we've lost most of his works because, frankly, he's a rather polarizing figure, too. I mean, you can't deny the fact that he is important in the history of the church, but you also can't deny the fact that he's been frequently condemned. I mean, we talked about this in the council episodes. Um, under the fifth council, he was actually anathematized. Justinian had his works suppressed, which is probably why we don't have a whole lot of works that remain. And in fact, most of what we do have from Origen is what we have in translation. Some from Jerome, as he was translating for his friend Paula. Also, uh, Rufinus, who was, who was really only known for translating Origen. And he also gave us quite a few of the works so that most of what we have of Origen, even though he preached in Greek, is actually in Latin for that very reason. So there's always the question of, you know, how much of Origen do we actually have? How much of it is an interpretation? So we'll kind of that's not what we want to focus on this time around. But we do actually have quite a few sermons from him. And in fact, they've been discovering some more and more of them recently. What do, I mean, let's just start with impressions, David. I mean, what, what do you make of Origen? Yeah, my, my uh, familiarity with him is limited to uh, a book called, uh, it's part of the Ancient Christian Commentary Series, Ancient Christian Texts, and it's his homilies on numbers. So mm -hmm. that's the only volume that I have of Origen. It's, it's such a mixed bag that it's hard for me to say, like, I really like it, or but I also can't say I really don't like it because... In the same homily, it'll be like one, one, one paragraph. I'll just be like, "That's great," and then the next paragraph is like, "I'm not tracking where you're going there, Origen." <laughs> and so I can't really say, you know, great preacher, or you know, you can do without him. Um, and and maybe that is a testament to the way he's been received in the church, which is, you know, at the very least, as a mixed bag kind of a thing, right? But the 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 desire to apply the text maybe is what, what is really driving a lot of what we would say, wow, that's a fanciful allegory. He wants, and, and I share that, I think that that's a, a good desire, right? You want, you want all of scripture to be useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so sometimes he's going to take a, a something that we would maybe be content to say, that's just what happened. You know, that's just the historical fact. And he's going to say, that's not good enough. You have to apply it. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that leads him then to say something like, um, you know, the hairs on your head being numbered, that's talking about what comes out of the head. He's not, Jesus is not talking about the hairs that grow on your head, but he's talking about the virtues that grow out of the mind that's full of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, mm -hmm. you know, that's maybe <laughs> what we would call fanciful, but he wants to apply scripture and make it uh, applicable for every every passage yeah 
And maybe since you started talking about the issue of allegory, which honestly I think is the biggest issue that we might have with origin in our day and age, especially because, as you said, allegory sometimes has a tendency to be very fanciful, and we might even think of it as being artificial. What I think, I think the what we have to understand with origin is that origin has an intense emphasis on words. Okay, he knows his Bible very, very well. We cannot deny that. Um, in fact, he he's very well noted for uh, producing in a a the the hex is it a hexapla? I yeah, can't remember. Yeah, that. that's right. Uh, the the various versions of the Greek Old Testament. Okay, he was very concerned with the words. He was aware of some of these differences. Okay, uh, but because he's so focused on his words and individual words, he also basically says that whenever if a word means something in another passage in scripture, then that is a valid thing to interpret, uh, to apply to a different passage. Okay. Which is kind of like where you're talking about, like with the hairs and the, the numbering and sort of thing, you know, because numbering might mean this over here in this passage, that means that it also means this over here, which is why you end up with these kinds of allegorizing sort of applications. I'll use one example that I I can remember off the top of my head. Because Origen is fully aware that the scripture uses circumcision figuratively in many passages, which is true. You know, Moses says, you know, circumcise the foreskin of your heart or, right. you know, be no longer stubborn. That's absolutely true. For that reason, Origen thinks it's also legitimate to apply that figuratively to Abraham himself. Okay. Because it means this over here, it can also mean this over here. But that's where the, the trouble of allegory run, comes up, I think, because it's this, you know, this, you know, bringing words across like this so that we can pull almost anything out of the text uh, in, an, in an effort to, you know, get yeah. to the application. Right. What do you want to say to that, David? Well, we we uh, we jokingly refer to this amongst ourselves as parallelomania. Right. So you, you find, all right, this is parallel to that. And therefore, they're um, they're actually the, saying the same thing. Well, parallel lines never actually intersect. So anyway, right. <laughs> um, they might be communicating a similar thought. And obviously, like with with circumcision, yes, the the figurative circumcision, that which is made without hands is building off of the one that actually is made with hands. But you can't go backwards and say, Therefore, Abraham didn't actually circumcise Isaac in the flesh. Um, right. No, he did. Right, right, exactly. And of course, Origen has a tendency to do this much more in the Old Testament than he does in the New, especially because, I mean, he, he'll very often complain and say, you know, how does this help me? <laughs> you know, yeah. what, is, what does this mean for me? You know, what is this text here as it reads? How is this supposed to give me any sort of benefit spiritually? And because he has this constant concern about what does this mean for me, uh, that's what I think is, is, is also largely driving his allegorizing. Because, I mean, I will give him credit. His allegory is not just find Jesus wherever he can kind of a thing. His allegory is an application for the life of the Christian. He's, also, he's very intensely concerned to say this is going to help me become a better Christian, even when it doesn't make sense to me, right? 
Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's that's what I mean by there is a what's driving the desire for for allegory, right? He's not just interested in how can I look really intelligent and what what sort of fanciful thing can I dream up here? He actually he it's the desire of a good teacher, which is I want I want even so I I referred to numbers, right? So how do I make these census numbers? How do I use the the census of the tribes of Israel? What is the what is the application of that? Okay. Mm-hmm. And so he's going to go and he's going to say, we have to apply this by saying those who are numbered, um, what are the characteristics of those who are numbered? It was young men of the age of at least 20 who were strong for war. And so he's going to say, therefore, the application for the Christian is to be numbered among salvation means to become like that yourself. You have to become a young man, if you will. And be prepared for war and be strong for war, whether you're a man or a woman or a child, right? It's to grow up um, out of childish ways and to become strong. And again, oftentimes, this is maybe typical of origin. There's going to be uh, an emphasis on growing in virtue and resisting vice. Right. Yeah. And, and And maybe we need to wrestle with, you know, how do we apply something like the census numbers in the beginning of numbers? You know, of course, you know, maybe maybe that's not a text that we're likely to preach on. But yeah, and that's that's worth pointing out here, too, with or with origin you have. And this is typical of a lot of the uh, patristic sermons that we have. There is this Lectio Continua thing going on. Right. Do you want to talk about that at all, Zoan? Yeah, no, I, I think it's important to talk about Lectio Continua, of course, being different from, say, like a lectionary electionary being what, you know, what we have chosen beforehand, you know, this passage, and then next time we'll talk about a different passage. But Lectio Continua is just that continuous, you know, I start at one, go to 12, and next time I start at 13, go to 20, you know, just continual reading of the scriptures. And that's very much what Origen is doing. And he does this for many, actually, I think if if I remember correctly, uh, he's supposed to have done this for virtually every book of, of the Bible. We don't have all of those sermons. A lot of them have been lost, but, you know, he, he wrote extensively in this way, you know, and there, there is a benefit to that too, because it covers everything that the scriptures have to say. So how do we get then to a good application of the census in the book of numbers? You know, what do we do with that? Yeah. We just don't read it in worship. (laughs) And so then you just avoid it. But um, yeah, the, that kind of exposure to scripture you know, the, you have to have more services than just the Sunday morning service if you're going to do that kind of thing. And I know you've done that a little bit where you are, Zoen, right? To kind of re, you know, we're going to have a regular Wednesday service. And that allows you then to say, we're going to go through the book of Daniel. And then when we're done with that, we're going to go through, I don't know, first Peter. Right. Yeah. Ironically, both texts that I have done. Yeah, so. that's why I said it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's, and yeah, well, and I mean, and with this too, you know, maybe, maybe when it comes to something like the census and numbers, you know, I find it very helpful to set these things in their historical context. You could also set it very clearly into the promises that God has made, you know, that I'm going to make you as numerous as the stars of heaven sort of a thing. And you can see that happening in the fact that, you know, from the 70 who go down into Egypt, you now have 600,000 men you know, and women and children besides. So God is keeping his promises that way, you know. And so there are applications that can be done. 
But the fact is, is that we don't wrestle with these questions the way that Origin was wrestling with these questions, because as you said, it just never comes up. Yeah. Right. Is that is that an indictment against us or what, what, what do we what do we do with that here? Well, I think that I think it's just worth pointing out that the origin is not don't don't be too quick to write somebody off as a moralist or an allegorist. Because if you do that too quickly, well, what do you do with when St. Paul does that or when Jesus himself, you know, uses allegory? These things are not automatically bad just because there's an abuse of them in some places. And in fact, I think when you do try to go through all of scripture, like if we were to do what Origen would would do, I think all of us would end up with some kind of odd allegories. You know, if you say enough things, you're going to say some weird things. And uh, <laughs> that's part of Origen's uh, difficulty. Now, he also had some things that were beyond the pale outside of the, you know, the rule of faith. But yeah, that's that's what happens when you try to teach the entire scripture. Yeah, but being charitable is no fun, David. So. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right. Well, any any last thoughts as we close out this episode for today? I think what I would say is just reading some of these early sermons and listening to them especially is, is pretty great because you do get a sense for that that the preaching task is a broad one. And there is a place for these different kinds of things. You know, a strongly exhortative sermon is needed. And so is sometimes this um, dwelling on the mysteries and the glories of Christ. And you can find examples of this all through church history. And you can benefit from that by just saying, you know, the way that I preach on a regular basis is not the only way to do it. And in fact, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to go about it. Very good. Well, thank you, David. Glad you were able to be with us today. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Zelwyn Heidi here with David Apple. God love you, and God bless. So come, all families of people, adulterated with sin, and receive forgiveness of sins. For I am your freedom. I am the Passover of salvation. I am the lamb slaughtered for you. I am your ransom. I am your life. I am your light. I am your salvation. I am your resurrection. I am your king. I shall raise you up by my right hand. I will lead you to the heights of heaven. There shall I show you the everlasting Father. Melito of Sardis.